Hey, everybody. This is Jamin, host of the Happy Market Research Podcast. In conjunction with MR Web, I've had the honor of interviewing three of the leading custom panel companies. This is one of those three episodes. If you're not currently subscribed to MR Web, I just can't recommend another resource. He gives you a daily update on happenings, whether it's HR, M&A, technology releases, companies going out of business, companies starting. I mean, there is not a single point of truth that I found to be more consistent and reliable than MR Web. So check them out. They're great. And I hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com. Hi, I'm Jamie Brazil, and you're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. My guest today is Paul Lawson, Executive Director at Verve. Did I say it right? You did, yeah, Verve. Yeah, we often get asked that question, but it is Verve. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay, perfect. Based in London, Verve is a market research technology company offering solutions for agile insights and custom panels. Prior to joining Verve, Paul was a research director at Cinovate. Paul, thanks very much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. It's a pleasure. I'm happy to be here. We'd like to start with some context for our audience. Tell us a little bit about your parents and how they have informed your career. Yeah, sure. So we're based in London, grew up in England. So that's the first bit of context. My mom, it was, it was interesting thinking about this, actually. And I had a chat to my parents about it last night, funnily enough. My mom had a whole bunch of different jobs, mostly, I guess, what you describe civil service type stuff. So she worked for HM Revenue and Customs in the taxes department over here. So that's the kind of money kind, not the wheeled kind. And she also worked for the National Health Service. So she had a job in a hospital in an eye department. And when I was thinking about kind of how it influenced me, I thought it was interesting because the jobs that she did often meant she she was interacting with people who were probably quite stressed and potentially were, were having kind of times where they were quite vulnerable. And she actually got me a job at the hospital that she worked in one summer. And I always remember kind of noticing firsthand how well she was able to empathize with people who were going through often tricky situations, but also at the same time, move them through the process because ultimately moving them through the process in the system was kind of part of what she was there to do. And I always kind of thought that it was really interesting how she managed to balance those two things. And I think the kind of the big one of those obviously for me is about empathy. My role in, in the business I work uh, in means that I have a lot of conversations with people that I've never met before. And in all of those conversations, it's obviously really important that you're able to empathize with people and that you can, you know, connect with them as human beings and, and kind of understand things from their point of view. And ultimately, it, I suppose that helps on both a personal level, but it also helps on a business level, because if I can understand them and their point of view, then I'm more likely to be able to kind of have a proper conversation about how we as an organization might be able to help them. So I think that kind of empathy that she was able to display in her role was definitely something that I've kind of brought forward into mine. My dad's career was very different, actually. So my dad's a carpenter by trade. One of my colleagues, when I was talking about it the other day, said, wow, he can make things with wood, um, which I thought was, um, you know, was a, was a great thing to say. It's something that has kind of completely passed me by. He's a brilliant carpenter, but I'm kind of not competent in that sort of area at all. 
He started out in a local carpentry firm in Birmingham, basically, um, in the kind of Midlands in England. And then he got a carpentry job with the local authority. Um, and the local authority was actually in Coventry, where I was born. And so after a while, he, he kind of did the carpentry work. And then after a while, he, he sort of moved through the local authority, you know, through a whole bunch of, of different roles and got promoted, basically. And he ended up working as a contracts manager. And he was on the housing side of things. So effectively, the local council has a whole bunch of housing housing stock that they place people in. And his job was to manage the contracts with suppliers who would come in and do work on those houses and maintain them and make sure that they were kind of up to scratch and, and were able to house people in the way that the council needed to. Um, one of the things, and not recently, but I've had a lot of conversations with my dad about work. And one of the things that I've always noticed when he talks about it is how much for a large chunk of time he was there, he really, really enjoyed it. You know, he kind of, I think a lot of the people that he worked with, he was genuine friends with and, and still knows a bunch of them to this day. But also those kind of friendship groups extended out to their broader families as well. And they worked hard, but they really enjoyed each other's company. And, and he has loads of stories about them genuinely having, you know, good fun times at work. And I think probably as he got promoted, he might have kind of lost a bit of that along the way because, you know, and it's a bit of a cliche, but that's what people do. But I do think, again, one of the things that, that has kind of stayed with me about that is, you know, you spend a lot of time at work and you may as well do your very best to enjoy the time that you're there, you know. And I think if you can work with a bunch of people who have a sort of shared goal and, and everybody's working in the same direction, you know, to that shared goal, which luckily enough, I have at Verve, then, then all of the better. But I do think that you can kind of make it a choice to be positive and enjoy your time at work because, hey, you're going to be there anyway. So my, why not try and get, get, get the most out of it? You know? <laughs> I really appreciate you going into this detail about your folks. There's a saying here in the States with car with carpenters. I don't know if it's limited to the States, but um, it's measure twice, cut once. <laughs> and right. And, and it's this it's this sort of aptitude of attention to detail on the front end will save you a bunch of work on the back end, which is, of course, a big part of the narrative of consumer insights and market research specifically. Right. As we Absolutely. think about informing the business decisions that enable really unlock revenues for our customers. And the other thing that kind of struck me thinking about or listening to you talk about your mom is this combination of empathy and movement is also centric to insight professionals, right? Because, you know, we can't just like dwell and exist in this single plane of understanding the customer. We have to then process and move and apply that to action for our customers. So it's, it's really interesting to me, you know, kind of you sitting in the in the role that, that you are in, in, you know, your storied career in Consumer Insights with sort of this broader application of or maybe characteristics uh, that you've drawn from your parents. Yeah. I, I, and, and you know what? It's, it's interesting, isn't it? When someone else kind of plays it back to you, actually, what, what you hear. And I, I think you're absolutely right. I think, uh, I mean, funnily enough, one of the things that probably my dad gets frustrated with me about when I try and do DIY with him is that is, is my lack of attention to detail. At the beginning. <laughs> you know, because, because I don't enjoy it, I, I right. kind of try and rush to the end. But uh -huh. And he says, you got to slow down. But you're absolutely right in, in the context. And this is something we talk a huge amount about in our world is, so we talk about agile insight a lot and kind of working in smarter ways one of the, the sort of 
primary things about that is slow down to speed up. So basically, you know, agile, people often think fast. It doesn't mean fast right at the beginning. It means actually <laughs> right. spending a lot of time at the beginning working out what yeah. the whole process is. And what that means is when you get to it and you repeat it, you can do it better and better and better because you've put all of the hard yards in up front. So you're absolutely right. We talk about that a lot. And equally, it's interesting, you know, when, when you kind of frame it that way, because equally what we're talking about with empathy and, and movement, you know, we talk a lot. Um, one of the kind of premises of our business is the idea of actually engaging the consumer in the process. So, you know, we, we want people to enjoy the process of taking part in research. We don't want them to do it because they're paid to do it or because they get points or anything like that. We want them to value participation. And so actually kind of empathizing with them and understanding what their experience is going to be like and therefore kind of trying to create a better one for them. That's really important, but also you can't spend your whole time on that because as you rightly say, the kind of purpose of it is to create insight that can help clients make better decisions. So you're absolutely right. Empathy and movement is kind of, you know, a really key thing. I might have found a, a new way of characterizing what we do. <laughs> yeah, this it's it's funny. I've, I've had a lot of conversations, most of which have been documented on Happy Market Research Podcast. And um, I've actually never heard it said exactly like as we're riffing on it right now, right? Which is, you know, you do have to go slow in context of agile. It's almost like we've injected some level of stress on, you know, the timeframes, which are, you know, requiring a feeling like we need to cut down on, and, and in some ways we do on the, on the silly work, but cut down on the, like the prep side of it, but we actually can save a lot of steps if we're smarter there. So anyway, I'm going to shift gears a little bit because we have a lot of things to talk about. But the last thing I just had to pull out was the, in preparation for the show, one of the things that I do is I check out Glassdoor. And Verve has a, probably one of the most vibrant, I would say, like portrayal of culture that I've seen on the show. And I've, I've had, I can't even tell you like the size of companies, right? All the like big companies and small companies too. And, and you guys really are shining. It's really, it, and it's interesting as I was reading some of the open job descriptions and looking at the pictures and it, it's, I'm like, I literally thought to myself, gosh, if I was 10 years younger, I'd want to work at that spot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. I mean, it, it, it's like, it comes across very attractive and like a, in like a fun place, you know? So I know this is probably sounding a little bit propaganda ish, but like when you think about the company culture, how would you characterize it at Verve? Do you know what? It's interesting. There's a couple of words. So we absolutely are entrepreneurial. And I'm not sure that people would sort of immediately kind of relate entrepreneurial to something that was sort of fun and engaging for the people who were there all the time. I think entrepreneurial can sometimes have a kind of slightly negative connotation, but we're absolutely entrepreneurial. But our boss, Andrew, the, the founder of our company, and you know, my, you know, the, the, and he's still in the business kind of running it today, he absolutely believes in the idea that you know we want to build and grow a great business, but we want to try and have fun along the way. One of the things, to be honest, we say is that we're called Verve for a reason. You know, We want to get out of bed and we want to go to work and we want to enjoy doing doing stuff when we're there. We want people to feel open to challenge processes, you know, people to ask, why do we do it that way? And are there different ways of doing things? So we want it to be a place where people can kind of get on and grow and learn and do new things, but at the same time, be part of a commercially successful growing business. And it's kind of those two things. And I think if we don't ever profess to kind of, we don't want it to be comfortable all the time because actually entrepreneurial businesses shouldn't always be comfortable because you should be moving forward and doing new things. But we do want people to be inspired and enjoy the process and, and, and kind of, you know, have a good time while they're there. 
Yeah, which verb, uh, of course, is vigor, enthusiasm, exactly. etc. Right. Yeah. Okay, good. So let's shift gears a little bit. Talk to me about Verve. How are you guys fitting into the overall market research ecosystem? Yeah, so I mean, I, I guess as I as I mentioned, sort of in the upfront bit a little bit. So we're agile insight and community panel providers. So we deliver our research, our insights in two broad ways. So we run long term community panels. Um, so you know, kind of, and, and through those, we're delivering you know multifunctional qual and quant and and kind of data integrated research programs, and then. We also deliver, you know, short-term sort of, you know, projects or programs via our, our pop-up communities and panels. So those are kind of the two main mechanisms for how we do what we do. In terms of kind of what Verve is about and how we fit in, I mean, we use a range of different technologies and approaches to help us develop what we think is better insight, basically. So we integrate a lot of behavioral and transactional data into the research process. So the kind of presence of data and the emergence of all of this data that kind of exists to help clients make decisions nowadays, I think in some places is seen as a risk to market research, but we absolutely see it as an opportunity. So we really love data and we integrate a lot of it into the research process. Like I say, we also really like kind of making sure that the people who take part in the research, the consumers, and, you know, they take part because they enjoy it, not just because they're getting paid to. It's really kind of key part of our proposition, which is about engaging the consumers who take part in the research as well as engaging the clients and the stakeholders who we're working for. Another key part is getting closer to the experiences that we're trying to understand. So technology nowadays enables you to do a really good job of actually understanding why people are kind of making certain decisions or how they feel about certain experiences in in the moment. And that's a big part of what we do. And we also give consumers lots and lots of different ways of kind of sharing their feedback. So we use video, we use voice, text, links to other content, you know, group discussions, lots of different ways of getting people to kind of share the stuff or share feedback about the experiences that they're having. So I guess that's a kind of part of functioning what we do. But what's really, really important about all of this is that the technology, I think, only gets you so far. So where the real kind of alchemy and magic happens is that we've got a a really large team of experienced, knowledgeable researchers and kind of broader community experts who know how to create the right tasks, moderate them in the right way, create the right questionnaires, you know, analyze the data, do all of that sort of stuff that means at the end of it all, our clients get information, insights and outputs that kind of help them make the decisions that they make. So very much at the kind of center of, you know, technology and and people, you know, because it's the people who make the technology powerful, I think. So that kind of, you know, that's, I guess, what we're doing. I mean, ultimately, in terms of where we fit into the ecosystem more broadly, the great thing about the approach and the reason for saying all of that stuff is that ultimately we're not really limited to one particular area or another. So we run communities that are all about innovation and product and service development. We run communities that are all about customer experience and journeys and user experience. We run communities that are all about brand and communications and understanding how to make that stuff better. And we run lots and lots of communities, short and long term, that are about all of those things and more. So the kind of real beauty of the approach, I guess, is, you know, the the kind of the use cases for it are many and varied. And I think really, in terms of communities nowadays, I think more and more clients all the time are kind of seeing them as a as a really kind of core tool and asset in their insight armory and the reason to have it there um, is kind of really dependent on what the needs and wants of, of the particular client is on any given day or period yeah the asset framework i think is really really interesting and accurate so much research is done on an ad hoc basis and you know if you think about building out that respondent record over time then you have an opportunity to get to know somebody 
in a much deeper way. And then, of course, incorporating that behavioral transactional data adds a, yet another layer. I've actually been really surprised that there hasn't been a product that has entered the space that has like a ad hoc survey and then tethered to that as an add-on, you know, you can get some chunk of relevant behavioral or existing, you know, self-reported or whatever, right? Kind of yep. uh, offering. Yeah. Well, I, I, and actually, not necessarily as a product, but absolutely, that's something that we do. So even with an ad hoc service, so even in a scenario where we're not running an ongoing community panel and all that sort of stuff, the technology exists to enable you from, you know, within a survey to actually get people via redirects to, you know, as long as they kind of give you all the appropriate permissions and stuff to then share with you, you know, behavioral data from a kind of, you know, previous set period of time, which is incredibly powerful, you know, because obviously there's this kind of perennial question in terms of research about what the kind of remembered versus the actual experience is and, and post-rationalized responses and all that sort of stuff. Actually, I think the kind of one of the things about the future of research is actually about kind of really integrating and, and kind of, um, you know, kind of bringing in those sorts of data points. And then just changing a little bit what the kind of makeup of a research project is. So in your scenario, which we do, by the way, you basically take a survey as part of the survey, you actually grab some behavioral data, and then you can use that as part of the analysis. Or what it might also be is a trigger for kind of future activities with the same people, because you're then starting to kind of interrogate, well, how do we make sure they have the same behavior next time? Or how do we make sure they, or how do we kind of try and influence them to have a different behavior? You know, those sorts of things. Yeah, it is really interesting when you, you start pulling back. So are there concerns around like at a, at a privacy level? Um, are you seeing are you seeing that? And there's been a lot, of course, of kind of webinars and education that are happening in the public and private sectors uh, as it relates with, you know, individual tracking. Are you seeing that like negatively impact your ability to be able to garner this, you know, behavioral or otherwise outside data? I, I mean, not really. I mean, if you take a scenario where we run kind of long-term community panels and what we often do is, you know, we link up with data in those scenarios. Now, we have a double opt-in process with, you know... It, so obviously in Europe, we're, we're fully GDPR compliant. Um, we work with big organizations. We work with big banks. Like, yeah, we have to be all over this stuff. But actually, the number of requests that we get from people to kind of, you know, delete information and that sort of stuff is incredibly small, basically. And I, and I think the key thing about it from our perspective as an agency, and I think more broadly as an industry, is that I think we all just need to be very kind of clear on what the purpose of collecting, you know, of asking people for that information is. And to the point I was making earlier, in a way, making them understand what value they get out of this time for participation. And I think if you can kind of create that sort of value exchange, and that's, that's another reason why you need to start thinking more broadly than money. Like if, if research continues to just exist on the basis that people will do stuff for us because we'll pay for them, then I think you're kind of in trouble. If you get people to kind of see the value in participation and understand why a brand is trying to understand, you know, and, and kind of explore your behavior and the data and then kind of understand why you made the decisions you made, then I think for the most part, people are up for that. People kind of understand their role as consumers nowadays and they understand that brands want to get close to them and understand them so they can provide better products and services. Yeah. I mean, this is such an important point. At uh, Decipher, I analyzed... So, so we used to send tremendous amount of customer supplied lists, uh, emails, you know, uh, soliciting yeah. people, customers... Uh, for feedback. And I analyzed over 250 million 
invitations that we sent out uh, in, in the subject lines. And what I found was that subject lines that connected, you know, sharing of information and community actually had oversized open rates versus those that were driven by a monetary return, whether it was sweepstakes or guaranteed. And so my takeaway there is, as you think about what, what are the true motivators, these intrinsic I want to see the world be better and I actually, you know, want to learn stuff can have a much bigger impact to driving your overall participation rate and engagement. Absolutely. And and you know what? It's it's one of the founding principles of our business. Basically, when Andrew kind of founded our business 11, 12 years ago, whatever it, it was, one of the founding principles was we want to do research with people who participate because they want to and see value in the process. And we believe through that we'll get better information from them and we'll get better you know, response rates and, right. and, and we'll pay less incentives. But in a way, the first one is kind of a lot you know, more important than the second two. All right. So, you know, thinking about motivators, let's talk a little bit about, you know, as I'm, I've been interviewing a lot of people relative to communities. What are you seeing in the marketplace right now for brands to actually, you know, their motivators to want to invest in building communities? And then as a separate point, what are you seeing as the bigger barriers for those for those brands adopting communities. Yeah. I think it's interesting when you think about kind of shorter term versus longer term, you know, communities. And, I, and, and there are lots of benefits and motivation that are similar for both, but, but some that are different as well. I guess, um, you know, what, one that's kind of similar for both is certainly the ability to do great quality in-depth work in a more scalable way. So we run global pop-up communities that mean you can do kind of international qualitative research in a centralized way. And ultimately doing it in a centralized way means less cost. That's a good thing. <laughs> um, now, as long as people and you know clients understand and we make sure in what we deliver that there isn't a compromise on the quality of what you were doing, then that's a massive thing. And actually the technology that, that's available nowadays enables us to do really, really good work, you know, work that genuinely kind of explores, you know, um, motivations and behaviors in an in-depth way, but we can do it, you know, internationally and in an internationally kind of scalable way as well. So I, I think that's a huge part of it. You know, organizations who businesses go across geographies and, and who want to kind of be able to deliver, you know, research kind of internationally in a, in a centralized way, but ultimately need to reach audiences who are across the globe. You know, I think that's a really big thing. I think the data point is an interesting one as well, not for everyone, but certainly if you think about organizations who have a lot of data, I think, you know, a motivation for building a community panel can be that actually a community panel enables you to integrate multiple sources of data in one place and kind of make the result of it greater than the sum of its parts some of its parts, you know. So at a simple level, you can put in the transactional and the behavioral data. You can gather profiling data when people join a community. And then every time they tell you, uh, give you some feedback, every time they respond to an activity, all of that information kind of gets put into the database as well. Now, you know, when you're then building out projects, you've got loads more information with which to kind of understand what is happening. And then what you can start to do is just use your research to understand why and, and what you should be doing about it. So I think maybe a need to try and integrate more data as part of the research process is definitely a motivation for for having you know communities and community panels, certainly the, the kind of longer form variety. I think there's one thing that you can't avoid, which is that 
they do enable you to respond more quickly. Now, the only reason I say you can't avoid it is because ultimately we're very keen not to just make agile and fast the same thing because they absolutely are not. Agile is the ability to respond in a kind of iterative way. It's the ability to be nimble and flexible, you know, and to get really good information but via a process that's lean, fast is just fast. But ultimately, we can still, if the processes are there and we've set it up in the right way, we can deliver responses in hours. You know, we can make hours the sort of high watermark. We can make days the standard product. So the ability to get out there and ask questions in a more kind of nimble and more agile and, and quicker way is definitely a motivation. I think as well, there is increasingly a desire for people to be able to work in a slightly different way. So the, the great thing about communities is that they can kind of support a more iterative and sort of collaborative working style. So moving away a little bit from the old kind of bookended approach of kind of brief proposal, fieldwork analysis report and moving to something that's a bit more, right, let's kind of get a larger group of stakeholders. Let's agree on a set of outcomes that we require. Let's run some activities. Then let's pause. Then let's kind of understand what we've heard. Let's actually understand whether that feedback changes what we want to ask next. And then let's kind of adapt it and change it a little bit. And then let's run a few more activities. And I think that sort of working style is kind of more in line with the sort of, you know, agile transformations and stuff that a lot of businesses are going through nowadays. So I I think the ability to work more in that kind of a, you know, iterative, collaborative way is is a motivator. And I think the other big one that um, that sits across all of this is the ability to be able to service multiple different objectives under one roof. So the ability to be able to do quant research, qual research, the ability to be able to link the two things together, um, the ability to be able to service innovation, product and service development, brand comms, you know, customer experience, journey mapping, UX, whatever else it is, all of the things that I described earlier, the ability to be able to service all of that in one place with a whole bunch of different kind of you know, ways of doing that work is absolutely a huge motivator. So, okay. I mean, that's really interesting. You know, what I didn't hear you say is cost. And so it it sounds like, yeah, because for me, you know, ad hoc research is expensive. It costs money to, you know, get people to take surveys. So, you know, why not assign a certain proportion of my spend to this more renewable resource, which is the community? Do you see a, ROI motivator or is it predominantly, and I'm not suggesting that it's not entirely worth it, by the way, but like, is it just centric to the added value that you get from a time and a quality perspective? I mean, do you know what? It, it's it's probably, it's interesting, isn't it? It's, it, it? You're absolutely right. And it absolutely is a motivator. So I guess, you know, when I make the point at the end about the ability to do all sorts of different kind of work under one roof with lots of different kind of approaches, the natural kind of thing that goes with that is actually in, to be able to do all of that for less money. And yeah, absolutely right. Ultimately, you know, doing ad hoc research is expensive. And actually the idea of clients going and paying to access their own customers via access panels is kind of oddly expensive. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. You know, ROI on your research program is is a big, big deal. And actually, I think, you know, particularly in, in the kind of, I mean, certainly, you know, there's obviously a lot of uncertainty, you know, kind of in the UK and Europe and stuff at the moment in these sort of slightly straightened times. I think the ability to get more bang for your book in terms of your kind of research budget is a huge thing. Absolutely. I guess it's kind of interesting from my perspective. I kind of left that off the bottom. <laughs> I think if you'd asked me the question 10 years ago, I think probably the first thing I'd have said to you is cost. I think, I suppose the thing about it is nowadays there are a huge number of benefits that come with having these communities right. um, and missing off cost isn't the right thing to do i guess the, the the point is that it's it's kind of not just about cost anymore you know one of the themes that i've seen 
materialized over the last two years is this rise in insights enablement across the organization. So, you know, the way I frame it is it used to be the case that market research was where people would turn to for consumer insights. But now, you know, technology has really democratized access to the consumer. How does technology influence the work that you guys are doing? I mean, absolutely. And in a huge way. I mean, I suppose the one preface I would make to kind of what I'm about to say is, as I said earlier, I think that it's always important to remember that the technology alone doesn't kind of, we don't think the technology alone gets you there, basically. So we are a, you know, we're a a kind of research services business who use a lot of great technology. But that said, the technology is a massive enabler of what we're able to do. So if you think about a lot of the themes that I've kind of discussed with you today, the ability to actually pull, if you take a long-term community, the technology enables you to take a single person or our technology enables you to take a single person and basically collect all of these multiple data points around that person. And then you can target individual activities based on any one single data point or any combination of those data points. Actually, the, the kind of potential of that is pretty profound. And the collection of all of that data has huge potential as well. So we're working on use cases where say we work for a retailer and we've got community panels that have got you know really large numbers of people on them and um, if we do pieces of work where we ask people how likely they are to buy a certain kind of product what we can then do over time is actually go back and kind of you know check how many of those people actually bought it you know and then you can do really interesting things so you can go back to groups of people and um, because you've got all the permissions in place you can go back to groups of people and and ask a certain group of people well you said you were going to buy it but why didn't you so was it because you didn't know it was available you know was it because you couldn't find it in your store? Was it because actually when you got there, you didn't think it was kind of the right thing for you? So you can do really interesting things with that data. Even over time, you can start to think about working out, you know, what is the correlation between what people are saying they're doing in research and what they're then doing in real life? Obviously, that's a kind of, that's a thing for the future because you need big data sets in order to achieve that. But actually starting to bridge that gap between what people say they're going to do and what they actually do. I mean, that's a pretty big deal in market research, I think. So the ability to kind of collect and use all of this data is is a huge thing that the technology enables us to do um, quite simply. And I guess this is, the, you know, this kind of harks back to a point I think we were talking about before is that it does mean that you can deliver more for your money. Um, the ability to do international qual, basically, you know, everybody knows about international qual and everybody knows about the kind of revolutionary impact of kind of panels 15, 20 years ago and, you know, online panels and the impact that had. But actually we're starting to, you know, well, we're certainly seeing that with qualitative research as well. We do fantastic culturally relevant, in-depth qualitative research in China and Russia and all over the world from our offices here in London or our offices in Chicago. And ultimately, we can, you know, doing that in a centralized way means you spend less money on it. Um, I think also the big thing that the technology does is it enables us to get much closer to the consumers that we're trying to understand. You know, mobile phones have been so kind of revolutionary for the work that we do because effectively they are carrying around with them a way of us kind of interacting with them everywhere they go you know and you know there's kind of so many advantages to that you know the ability to actually get them to give feedback much closer to those experiences that they're having which means you know we're able to kind of you know get past some of this kind of post-rationalized stuff but also the ability for them to use that that technology to share their experiences there and their feedback in really interesting ways so their ability to you know just record a video or share a picture 
or link to some content that somebody else shared or, you know, kind of share a voice message or just upload something in text. All of these different means that we can give people to kind of, you know, explain their attitudes and their behaviors and their experiences. That's what the technology does for us. And ultimately, the other really interesting thing is actually then the platform that gives us as an agency and the content it gives us to try and create better kind of insight communication. So we think insight communication is a big, big deal. And actually, a lot of that is about using all of the content that consumers share via all this great technology in better ways to create kind of insight communications that, that are kind of more emotionally engaging for stakeholders. The framework of agile, and you know, we kind of started here in context of going slow to go fast, has you know been borrowed from the tech sector and product sector, and I actually think it's a, exactly how we need to be framing our, regardless of, of what we're doing, right? Which is, you know, we need to be close to the point of decision as insight professionals, so that it addresses a time and a, and a space and a overall value to the the company to the organization. When you think about the actual ROI on research, how do you think that market research can do a better job of ensuring that the insights are in fact used in the organization? Yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a kind of, um, it's, it feels like a perennial question, doesn't it as well? And I, and I think it's a really interesting one. And, and it, you know, every time you go to a conference and that sort of stuff, people are always having these debates around it. And, you know, this kind of question around how can market research do a better job of, of sort of getting a seat at the table? That's one of the things that I hear quite a lot. And I think from our perspective, it's about a couple of things. One of the things that I hear quite a lot is this idea that market research needs people who can act as, as kind of consultants. So they're not just just deliverers of data and deliverers of information and completely agree with that. We have to be able to act as consultants to businesses. But I do believe that there are plenty of people in market research. I think market research is full of people who can act as, as consultants, um, or there are certainly a lot of them anyway. And, and we have those types of people with our, within our business. I think that the kind of challenge there is how do you get there? You know, It's fine saying we need people who can act as consultants, but kind of the fact that they can doesn't mean that they do. And I think that's all about kind of having the platform. And, and I think from our perspective, it all comes down to partnership, basically. So the only way that you're going to get a platform and you're genuinely going to be able to kind of act as a consultant is if you are trusted by clients and trusted by their stakeholders. And so when you talk to people, they listen. And then what that means is that the information you are sharing with them is more directly impacting the decisions that they make and therefore kind of more directly kind of, you know, linking into ROI and all those types of things. And actually, I, I think certainly long-term community panels, our experience certainly of it is that the community panel relationship can give us that platform. The reality of running community panels for us is that we sit in our clients' offices, we hear them talk, we kind of get to know their problems, um, you know, like the ones that they put in the briefs, but also the ones that they don't, which are, you know, really, really important. And the really, really critical thing is that we talk to their customers all the time. And so when you've got that combination, you know, when you, you're there and you're working with them and you understand them as a business, but you get to a point where you are the person who understands their customer and their consumer, then that's a real partnership. And I think at that point, and our experience is that at that point, you know, you start to have that seat at the table. And when you talk, you get listened to. I think the other big thing that as an industry and that we can do, and, and certainly what we are focusing on a lot is how we communicate the insights that we generate. So 
I'm a huge believer that there is a lot of really fantastic research that gets done and insight that gets created that potentially doesn't have the impact and value that it should do because of the way that it's communicated. Um, What we do is focus on the communication much more as part of the process. And again, to the point we were making earlier about slow down to, to speed up, it's actually about starting at the beginning and saying, well, I need to understand the stakeholders in your organization. I need to understand who are we trying to influence. I need to understand what sort of information and content and experiences they're most likely to respond to. Some people want data. You know, some people want you know, need to be able to kind of more emotionally engage with the consumers, you know, there's lots of different kind of ways that people can be influenced. And so we do a lot of work up front on that, on understanding those stakeholders. And then when we create these research projects and we generate all of this great kind of content and information, what we're then able to do is take all of that stuff through and build more emotionally engaging outputs. And I think if we can emotionally engage stakeholders, if we can get them to understand that this isn't us as a research organization standing there telling you you know, telling you to do, to do something, this is us as your partner, giving you the viewpoint of your customer and showing you in a kind of emotional way why it has an impact on the experience they have, I think we are more likely to influence the decisions that they make. Yeah, that's, that's, I I totally agree with that. I think, you know, the other thing that's really can be powerful when you're thinking, again, in context of a community is you as a researcher get to know that group of people in a way that makes the storytelling more less transactional and more, um, well, community oriented, which again, we know that the better that, you know, the, the better the story, then the better the um, opportunity or the improved opportunity, the organization has to adopt that, those, those insights. I call it the, you know, the water cooler effect. It's not about how well I tell the story. It's, you know, what story is told after I tell the story, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Well, absolutely. Yeah. And we like to think of it a, a sort of more immersive approach to the way that you communicate insight. And it's applying that to kind of all of the insight communication that you do. There's a client that I have who, it's her phrase. I'm not going to kind of tell you who she is, but it's her phrase. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend it's mine, but she had a great phrase. She always said that basically insight tells you what to do. Immersion gives people the emotional context and the emotional reason to do something about it. And I love that because it's basically creating those stories and creating that emotional connection which means when they're at the water cooler and when they're talking to other people, they kind of understand and share why it's really important that you do something about it. Yeah, that's great. Okay, well, we have, this has been a fascinating episode and I'm going to have to move into our last question, even though I've got so many more (laughs) for you. What is your motto? Yeah, so you, I, I've, I've, so I've, I've thought a little, a bit about this, and actually, do you know what? When it comes down to it, I actually think it's something that's really simple, and it's influenced by thinking about, you know, it's influenced by the stuff that we talked about up front in terms of what my parents do, and it's influenced in terms of the role I do at work and my whole career. I think it's really, really simple. If you're going to do something, commit to it fully and show people that you care about it. Market research is an incredibly crowded marketplace, and we have lots of conversations, and we go through lots of pitch processes, you know, for programs and. Projects and all that sort of stuff. And there's loads and loads of reasons why, you know, we can and can't win stuff, you know. And most of those things, it's hard to always be in control of. You have an idea, you try and communicate that idea, and there are going to be certain reasons why that does or doesn't kind of, you know, become the one that wins. However, I think the one thing that you can 
always be in control of is kind of how passionately you respond to people and how committed you show that you are to trying to create a relationship with them and wanting to work with them. And I think that's the thing that you can always be in control of. And I think that is also something that you can pretty kind of easily apply your sort of life outside of work as well. You know, if you're going to do something, commit to it and show you care about it or don't do it at all. My guest today has been Paul Lawson, Executive Director at Verve. Thank you, Paul, very much for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast today. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Everyone else, if you found value in this episode, please take the time to screen capture, share it on social media. It would mean the world to me. As always, your five-star reviews help us bubble to the top for other insight professionals to be able to find this content. We've got over 50,000 listeners and growing. Really appreciate the ongoing support. Have a great rest of your day. This episode is sponsored by G3 Translate. The G3 Translate team offers unparalleled expertise in foreign language translations for market researchers and insight professionals across the globe. Not only do they speak hundreds of languages, they are fluent in probably the most difficult one, market research. For more information, please visit them at g3translate.com.